I want to begin today by studying just one verse from this morning's Torah reading. It's Genesis 26, verse 15, and it reads, V'chol ha-be'erot asher chafru avdei aviv, bimei Avraham aviv. And all the wells that were dug by your father, by Isaac, by your father, by the, father, by the servants of your father at the time of Abraham, stom plishtim v'yimalum efer. And the Philistines stopped it up with earth. Stopped it up with earth. Now, what's the context of this particular verse? The context is found in a few verses before, uh, beginning in verse 12, uh, verses 12 through 14. Um, Isaac has been blessed in all things by God. He's growing richer and richer and richer. His flocks and his herds are expanding. He has a very large household. By the Torah's own account, Isaac is very wealthy. And this breeds resentment amongst King Avimelech and his community, such that King Avimelech rescinds the protection that he was providing for Isaac and for his tribe. And the Torah tells us, Vayik anu oto plishtim. The Philistines became envious of Isaac. So what's their response? They stop up the wells. Now, think about it for a moment. What good does that do them? I could understand if they wanted to take over the wells. I can understand if they wanted to drive Yitzhak, drive Isaac away, but stop them up? Remember where they are. They're in the Middle East, in the desert. Water is life, mayim chayim. If you stop up the wells, not only are you causing damage and harm, to those for whom you're envious or might be your enemy, but you're sabotaging yourself. You have to have water. And their response, the response of the Philistines seems to be, you won't have water and we won't have water. It doesn't make any sense. Who does that? Who acts in a way that is not only against um, the interest of those with whom you're in competition, but against your own interest? And the answer is quite obvious. That's the behavior of a fundamentalist, of an extremist who hates so much the other, who wants to damage the other in such a way that they don't care that they're also damaging their own interests and taking away from themselves. And the language of the Torah is actually more explicit in the Hebrew than it is in the English. The language is vayikan u oto plishtim. The word kana kuf nun aleph means a zealot. It's not envy is already a passive, minimal kind of term. Kana means a zealot. It's the Torah's language for a fundamentalist, 
for an extremist, which by the way, at another time we should talk about how that's also the language the Bible uses for the Maccabees. We celebrate the Maccabees, but if you read the book of Maccabees, it's not so clear what that story is about. That's for another time. But when I turn to this week's Torah reading, um, I'm exhausted. Not just from the Torah reading, but I'm exhausted by the events that are happening around me in the world today, especially when it comes to Israel. Uh, I was just there a couple weeks ago for the Jewish Agency. I know Bruce and Leanne were there as well. Um, And though the Jewish Agency didn't talk about it formally because the elections had just occurred and I think people were numb and hadn't yet come to terms with what the next government was really going to look like and what their platform was going to be. Um, If you walked the streets of Tel Aviv or you took a cab and you do what I like to do, which drives my family, especially my children, crazy, and that is just talk to everybody I meet, um, you find out that the cabbies in particular, even in Tel Aviv, um, voted for for, um, not just Bibi, but for the religious Zionist parties of Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, um, the extremists that are now poised to become members of the next government. Um, and they did that. They did that because of their concern for public safety, personal safety. Personal safety in Israel is the equivalent of the economy in North America. We in North America, in the United States and Canada, we vote our pocketbooks by and large. In Israel, you vote whether or not you feel you're safe in the streets. And over the last several months in Israel, we've seen an increase of terrorism, of the lone wolf terrorism, which is impossible to stop, of people coming randomly and stabbing and shooting and um, killing Israelis for being Israeli, for being Jewish, to the horrific, uh, coordinated, more sophisticated attacks we saw last week in terms of the two bus bombings that took place outside of Jerusalem. It's no surprise that at that moment in which Israelis are feeling insecure and unsafe, that they're going to vote for those people who speak the loudest and and in the strongest terms about making them safe. And that's what happens in moments of tension and of loss. Months of terrorism um, have really led to these Israeli elections about public safety. The problem is that if you look at the history of Ben Gvir and Smotrich in terms of their religious, political, cultural ideas, you see that that these guys, they're racist. Their platform is, is, is not just about public safety, but it's about uh, theocracy. Smotrich would love for Israel to be a halachic state, which is, would be the equivalent by some as a Shiite state guided by religious law. Um, Ben-Gvir was banned from serving in the IDF because of his um, activities and relationships with people like Kahana, his support of uh, Baruch Goldstein, 
Um, he's tried to distance himself from this for a little bit, but Baruch Goldstein, you might remember, was the um, West Bank Israeli who murdered 29 um, Palestinians in Hebron um, 30 years ago. He used to have a portrait of Baruch Goldstein in his living room. Right? You look at, at, at what they want to do, they want to roll back the rights of the LGBTQ plus communities, they want to um, disavow any recognition of conservative reform, anything other than their orthodoxy in Israel and strengthen the hand of the rabbinate. They want to, um, you know, they've changed it over the years, but today is anybody who's disloyal and acts against the state of Israel, especially if they're Arab, should be expelled. Um, and they, and they want to um, have control over the, the police and the security apparatus, both within Israel and in the West Bank, so that when terrorism and riots erupt, they can um, push them down in the most extreme kinds of, uh, of forms. And if anybody thinks that that's going to be the way in which you create peace and quiet and create a context for peace for Israel, that person doesn't really understand history, sociology, anthropology, or human behavior. It's not going to work. And even the most right-wing Israeli military analysts, who over the course of my career I've had the opportunity to be in the same room with, will tell you there is no military or police solution to the conflict with the Palestinians. Every time a war breaks up in Gaza, the national security advisors will tell you Israel can recapture Gaza in two weeks. Can recapture Gaza in two weeks. It has the capacity to do that. Its military is that strong. That's not the problem. The problem is, is once you recapture it, what do you do next? Then you have to go house to house and clear out all the terrorists, all the um, radical extremists, all the weapons, and that will be bloody. Bloody for the Palestinians and bloody for the Israelis. And then you have to occupy that territory again and be responsible for the day-to-day -day administration of the people that live there. The issue is not that Israel's military is not capable of doing it. It is. The issue is, is that cost going to get you to the results that you want? And so Israel, up until this point, even Bibi Netanyahu, because he understands this, Israel, up until this point, has fought the only fight that it can wage under these circumstances, which is an asymmetrical war that every couple of years boils over and then has to create a new deterrent in order to create a couple years of quiet with the hope being that in those years of quiet, the diplomats can figure out a solution or a long-term process that leads to greater peace. That's what happens. That's complicated for people to understand. Most of the conversation is just black and white and comes from the gut and not from the head. And in a circumstance where you lack that politics, and in a circumstance in which violence rises and rhetoric rises and hope is diminished, 
You create the opportunity for polarization, which is what we're seeing around the world, including today in Israel. And for the first time, we're going to see a very right-wing government that is not tempered at all by even the center-left or the left. Bibi thought it was going to be easy to form this government. And it hasn't been, because he knows, especially when it comes to Smotrich, he knows that he's opened Pandora's box. And when you do that, you create an, a, a circumstance, just like in the Torah, where you act even against your own interests, trying to fight those that would do you harm. Fundamentalism has a tendency, unfortunately, to breed fundamentalism. Act, react, act, react. That's the cycle. Now, Isaac's response for all of this is very instructive and provides us an ancient model of an alternative approach. Rabbi Matt Berkowitz, in commenting on this, writes, that Isaac extracts himself from an explosive situation through proactivity, vision, a commitment to his ancestral land, and pragmatic flexibility. And this is found in verses 17 through 22. Isaac, Vayelech Misham Yitzhak, Isaac departs from that location in which he and um, his people and Avimelech's people were fighting and he camps in the wadi of Gerar. He digs a new well, redigs a well that was dug in the time of his father Abraham, in which the Philistines had stopped up, and he gave them the same names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants digging in the wadi found there a well, a spring of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac, and they said, the water is ours. So Isaac named that well Esek, meaning quarrel. And then he moves again, and he digs another well. And they dispute over that again. And so he names that well Sitna, meaning hostility, until he moves yet again to find another well. And he finds that well, and that well is in a location in which he and Avimelech's People do not quarrel, so he calls it Rehovot. Now, at last, the Lord has granted us ample space. Ample space to increase in the land. Rehovot. Isaac understands that at the end of the day, he's not going to be able to change the nature of his enemies. The only person that he can change is himself. So Isaac, through his actions, shifts his circumstance, the way in which he encounters and engages with the other. Now, this isn't to say that Israel does not have a right to defend itself. This isn't an argument for passivity um, in the face of violence. Israel absolutely has a right to defend itself. 
and it's justified in most of the responses that it takes, considering the very difficult circumstance in which it finds itself. But as I said previously, a response militarily or with police is not going to solve this problem. We have two peoples that are living in the land, and they have to figure out how we make the land big enough for both to survive and to thrive, to create space for the legitimate Palestinian aspirations, but not at the, not at the expense of Israeli lives. We can't criticize Israel and not remember the responsibility that the Palestinians have in this conflict as well. They too must be held accountable for their actions. But at the end of the day, that's not my major concern, especially not today. My concern is what will be the actions of this incoming government, not just vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, but vis-a-vis -vis all the issues that I care about as a Jewish person. I fear that we're going to have some very tense days and months ahead. And it's going to have impacts not only in terms of people that we may know and love and care about, family, friends, the community in Israel, but it's going to impact here too because we know that whenever something happens in Israel, there is now today a greater impact of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, posing, posing, which is really anti-Semitism, um, in our community as well. And so it's incumbent upon us, I think, to really make sure that we first and foremost understand the issues and the people who are involved. That we can articulate from our positions of Jewish values an expression of, of commitment not only to Israel, even when we disagree with the policies of its government and its leaders, but also ways in which we can find, hopefully, leverage points to shift our own circumstance, as Isaac did in the Torah, to create space wide enough for Israel to prosper according to the values that she herself holds deal. If you read the Declaration of Independence and even the basic laws that have been uh, passed by the Knesset. Um, and also that we find those leverage points by which we can participate in Israeli society and impact it according to the values that we share. Because Israel is our homeland. We may not be citizens. We may not have the right to vote in Israel's elections. That's the right for Israelis. If you want to do that, make Aliyah which, by the way, is a good thing. You should make Aliyah anyway. <laughs> but as North Americans, really the only way that we have to impact Israel is through the Zionist institutions, the World Zionist Organization, the Jewish Agency for Israel, Karen Kayemet Israel Kakal JNF, and Karen Hayasod, the network of Jewish federations from around the world because there are billions of dollars that those organizations have 
and are able to allocate for Jewish causes that benefit Israel and the connection between Israel and the diaspora. In the two years' time, there is likely to be another election of the World Zionist Congress. We as conservative Jews, we have a party to the Congress, to the WZO, Merkaz Canada, Merkaz standing for centrist because we are centrist Jews. We like to balance the left and the right, not necessarily a swing one way or the other. And so you can get involved with Merkaz, and even if you don't get involved with Merkaz, by becoming a member of Merkaz, you increase Merkaz's standing within the elections. And the WZO is straight power politics. The more votes, the more representatives, the more representatives, the more delegates, the more people that we can appoint to the national institutions to impact the agenda of the Jewish people worldwide. It's really that simple. Showing up is 95% of what we need to do in order to have an impact here. Because if Smoltrich gets his way or Ben Gvir gets his way, I'll give you one very simple example. Um, a couple months ago, you might remember a bar mitzvah that took place at Robinson's Arch in Ezra Yisrael that was interrupted by fundamentalist Jews who came and whistled and shouted epithets and ripped cedarim and blew their nose in their cedarim um, and, and wildly disrupted and offended the people that were there. As a reaction to that, the Jewish Agency for Israel passed a resolution asking the chair, Doron Amog, to go to the police ministry and to arrange for there to be an ongoing police presence at um, the site, which he was successful doing. There is today 24-hour police presence at the site. There's an increased police presence during Rosh Chodesh when tensions get um, rough. There's a plan to put 24-hour cameras there so that the police station can constantly monitor what's happening in the spot. All of that is brand spanking new because of the relationship of the Jewish agency to the diaspora and to the government of Israel, in this case, the police force. If Ben Gvir becomes the national security minister, which is a new position that will oversee the police force, he can remove all of that protection. It will be within his right to do so um, because he has the authority to do so. And since he and Smoltrich have already declared that they don't want that site, they want to cancel the Kotel Agreement completely. They want to cancel the right for pluralistic Jews to pray there completely. It's not out of the realm of imagination that he's going to do so. So how do we respond to that um, if we don't have a stronger presence in the national institutions as long as there's a government that risks rolling back all the things that we, have a move, as a movement and as Jews, have worked for for the last several decades. And that's just what it does for us, not what any of this also has the potential to do in terms of diminishing Israel's own standing and impacting its own 
society, for it has the potential to act even against its own interests. And so today's Torah reading speaks to us very directly about these circumstances. We're not going to be able to convince those that have extreme views of why those views are so dangerous. That's just not realistic. But like Isaac, we have the ability to control ourselves. We have the ability to shift our perspective and redouble our efforts in those means that will give us a chance to bring about change. And God willing, if that happens, then like Isaac, God will respond. As we learn in verse 23 of chapter 26. And Isaac went up from there to Beersheba. And God appeared to Isaac in the middle of the night. And said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Because I'm with you. And I will bless you and increase your offspring for the sake of my servant Abraham. Like much of the Torah, God doesn't come to intervene necessarily in human affairs. But in this case, as in many other cases, it's when Isaac shifted his place, when he shifted his place and he shifted his luck, that's when God appeared. May it be so for us as well. Shabbat Shalom.